morning. It's good to see all of you. I'm glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. We're especially glad if you are one of our guests. We hope you will stick around after services. Let us get to know you and get to know us just a bit better. You want to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. We'll be reading verses 31 to 39. We've been doing an unofficial uh, series of sermons, uh, not under any particular uh, canopy or banner, but they have been related because, uh, as I said a few weeks ago, it, it seems like we are in a season of grief and sorrow, suffering and pain. And so uh, the last couple few weeks, we've been addressing those, uh, those things. I think it's a needful thing. And to that end, I want us to read as we begin Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. Hear now the word of the true and living God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, as we look to the cross this morning, may we see how you have acted, how you have responded to evil in this world, and what it means for us as it pertains to our suffering and our sorrows. We need your help, Father, this morning by your Spirit living within us. Enlighten our eyes, even the eyes of our minds, so that we can clearly see you and love you more dearly. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. If an inmate on death row were to suffer even the teeniest, tiniest bit and they are executed, you can be sure there would be a lawsuit. The Eighth Amendment, there is no, to be no cruel or unusual punishment. Therefore, an inmate on death row who finally makes it to the front of the line will be executed quickly, in a sterile way, in a humane way, and in a relatively painless way. 
It was a few years ago that J.W. Ledford Jr. had his lawyers argue that the lethal injection drug carried, quote, a substantial risk of causing unconstitutional suffering, and so execution by firing squad was the only appropriate alternative. Ledford was facing the death penalty for stabbing his elderly doctor neighbor to death in January 1992. He had threatened his neighbor's wife, demanded money, and stole some possessions of the house uh, from the house before stealing his neighbor's truck. And so surely after 25 years of incarceration, he was a reformed man, right? Well, for starters, there was his final meal that he requested. It was a 5,500 calorie meal consisting of filet mignon wrapped in bacon and covered in pepper jack cheese, large french fries, 10 chicken tenders, fried pork chops, a blooming onion, pecan pie with vanilla ice cream, sherbet, and a Sprite. And then there were his last words. With a Cheshire cat smile on his face, he misquoted Cool Hand Luke. And then to all the witnesses there, he said, you can kiss my white trash blank. Lethal injection was administered, and three minutes later, Ledford Jr. passed apparently quite peacefully, closing his eyes, taking a few breaths before falling still. Never mind the pain and the trauma that Ledford, uh, Ledford had caused his neighbor and his wife. This uh, upstanding model citizen needs to be as comfortable as possible in his final moments. Of course, there are other cases. The case of Clayton Darrell Lockett. In June of 1999, Lockett terrorized three teenage girls by beating one, raping another, and driving the third into the country. And when she refused to agree not to tell police, he shot her twice with a shotgun before burying her alive. The prosecuting DA said, that when he interviewed Lockett, he showed no remorse, saw a twinkle in his eye as he related the details, and came away believing Lockett was pure evil. Fifteen years later, in April of 2014, after a morning that included Lockett, Lockett attempting to slit his wrists, hang himself, barricading himself in his cell, and corrections officers tasering him, Lockett was finally in the lethal injection chamber. Only things did not go as planned. It took over a dozen attempts to finally insert the needle into a vein. And after the first of the three drugs, a sedative was administered, the IV dislodged from the vein. The other drugs, a paralytic and the actual heart-stopping drug, were administered into the flesh. And after uh, a half hour, for over a half hour after being sedated, and while the paralytic and death drug were supposed to be stopping his heart, Lockett kicked his right leg, breathed heavily, clenched his teeth, and rolled his head, lurched against the restraints, struggled violently, and even tried to talk. Ten minutes after the execution was officially stopped, Lockett was declared dead. He had been dying a slow, agonizing death the whole time. Two radically different ends of two very contemptible people. Compare this incident with Jesus' own end of life. Jesus was sinless, is sinless, perfect. 
He was innocent, but he was convicted and sentenced to the worst imaginable evil that had ever been conceived by the mind of humans, crucifixion. And it is a striking contrast indeed. In America, we attempt to make convicts who are guilty of the worst crimes as comfortable as possible before their executions. But the innocent Christ experienced unimaginable pain and suffering as he died. And the pain and the suffering that our Lord endures on the cross did not begin on the cross. Come with me to Mark chapter 14. We spent a number of weeks in Mark earlier this year. Mark chapter 14 begins to chronicle the the sufferings of Christ. We know about his suffering in Gethsemane. In the parallel passage in Luke's gospel, we read that he was striving in prayer to such a degree that his, his sweat became like drops of blood. We know what Jesus says there. He is sorrowful even to the point of death. And then he's actually arrested in verse 43 of Mark chapter 14. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And I'm guessing that this mob arrest was not unlike other mob arrests historically. I doubt they came to him and said, "Um, Sir... Would you please come with us? Mobs don't behave that way. So I doubt that the mob was gentle with Jesus. Especially given that one of Jesus' followers at this point brandished a weapon. Pulled out a sword and attempted to cut off the high priest's servant's head. Missed and only got his ear. I'm sure that this mob roughed Jesus up. Shoved him, hit him, struck him. They were violent to him. And so it began. As you continue, you have the the trial of Jesus. Verses 53 to 65. In verse 65, we read that some, at the end of it, they conclude he's guilty of blasphemy. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And this is probably the place where the prophecy of Isaiah 50 is fulfilled. Isaiah 50 is in the heart of the the chapters that deal with the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh. And of course that is fulfilled in Christ. Well, one of the things that is said in Isaiah 50 and verse 6 about the servant, he says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And I think about that. You know, when we have a few couple nieces, and, and when they were very little, and I would hold them, my, my beard was just a little bit longer. And you know what they love to do? They love to just latch onto that thing and hold it with their chubby little hand. And, and they would tug on it, and, and it hurts, right? You pull any of your hair, and it hurts. And Jesus, no doubt, like the other men in his uh, contemporary society, had a beard, wore a beard, and they pulled it out as part of the suffering that he endured. They, dis- they receive him with disgrace and spitting. We come to chapter 15 and verse 15, and, and here we read that when Pilate presents Barabbas and Jesus 
The, the crowds cry out for Barabbas, and so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the Roman scourging, listen, the, the Jewish people had a rule. Forty lashes minus one, because if you were to give them 41, that would be a disgrace to a, a fellow kinsman. The Romans didn't have that rule. And they didn't stop at 40. They kept going. I gave my back to be beaten. And Jesus did. He received the Roman scourging. With the, the flagellum, it, was, it had multiple uh, lashes on it and tied usually to the end of each one of those cords was a, a bit of metal or bone, perhaps. It was intended to inflict maximum damage as it tore into the flesh. And this is the scourging that Jesus received. Deep lacerations to his flesh, to his muscles, perhaps even half dead at this point. In fact, there were some victims who didn't survive the scourging. They died under that. Our Lord endures it. The soldiers receive him with more blows in 15, verse 19. They were striking his head with a reed, spitting on him. They mock him, kneeling down in homage to him. And then we come to the crucifixion. Verses 21 and following. Christ hangs on the cross for six hours. It is true, some crucifixion victims would last for days. And it was all meant to inflict maximum pain and torture. You were being tortured to death as you were slowly asphyxiated. And for six hours, Jesus hangs on the cross. After three hours, that's when everything went dark. We talked about, uh, in Bible class this morning, about the highly figurative symbolic language that's used in prophecy when the sun refuses to shine and the moon goes dark and, and the, the stars uh, refuse to shine as well. Here, it actually has literal fulfillment. Uh, it, it seems as if the heavens themselves refuse to look upon this travesty, this gross miscarriage of justice as, as an innocent man and even the sinless, perfect Son of God dies on the cross. Also, what, what happens during this time is, is the earth quakes as if the, the earth itself refuses to accept this monstrosity, this travesty of justice. The whole earth, the whole cosmos, violently demonstrating this man was innocent. This man was sinless. The brutality, the inhumanity, the cruelty, the savagery, the viciousness, the bloodlust. It just draws out like a blade, minute after minute, hour after hour, as our Lord dies. There was the physical pain, there was the emotional trauma, the psychological trauma, the spiritual trauma, all this pain and suffering, it just drags out all of those agonizing hours beginning the night before and then finally culminating at around three in the afternoon when he does breathe his last and he gives up the ghost and he dies. And the death he dies, he dies for us, for our sins. 
The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the thing about lambs in the sacrificial system is they died. And Christ dies on the cross. In our place. That's, that's the nature of the sacrifice, of the atonement. He takes our place. That is the death that is due us. That is our punishment. And it falls upon Him. What did God do about evil and pain and suffering? N.T. Wright has written a little book. Volumes and tomes can be written on the subject of suffering and evil, but Wright's is, is rather short, just uh, clocking in over 100 pages. It's a, it's a primer to the subject. And he, he discusses in a couple of chapters about what God did uh, with, with evil. He starts in the Old Testament. He begins to unpack the Abraham story. Works his way backwards all the way back to creation. And how you see God doing something about evil in the world. At the very beginning, when, when humanity sins, Adam and Eve are shown mercy. Because justice, you want justice done, it means death, immediate. But He gives them mercy. Grants them to live. Clothes them. Yes, they're banished from the Garden of Eden. But they live under the mercy of God and according to His good pleasure. A similar thing happens with Noah and the flood. God is responding to the, the wickedness, how, how every thought of the intentions of the heart of humans was continually evil, always. And it, it culminates with the call of Abram in chapter 12, who would go on to become Abraham. And, and it's through Abraham that, that the people would come who were to be the solution to the problem of evil. But in fact, they only make things worse. We know the sordid history of the people of Israel. How time and again they, they sin and they fall short and they rebel and they break covenant and they're unfaithful. And yet there is this promise of a servant, this Messiah, this anointed one of God who would come. And it is through that people who only make the problem worse that the solution indeed comes. And it comes in the form of God condescending. God leaving the glories of heaven. God the Son leaving heaven, sent by the Father, coming willingly to put on flesh and dwell among us and to live a sinless, perfect life that we could never live, satisfying the righteous requirement of the law so that it might be met in us. And then it all culminates in the cross. And and right, right in his book, he says it this way. He says, the gospel tells the story of how the evil in the world, political, social, personal, moral, emotional, reached its height and how God's long-term plan for Israel and for himself finally came to its climax. The cross is the point where the evil of the world does all that it can and where the creator of the world does all he can. It is the event where God in Christ suffers the full consequences of evil and deals completely with evil, the political, social, cultural, personal, moral, religious, and spiritual angles, all rolled into one and reaching its climax in the cross. Evil does all it can, and God accomplishes all His will. God sends God into the world. The Father sends the Son to 
to die in our place. And as a result, everything from the cross forward is different. It is Christ ushering in his new heavens, new earth, his, his new Jerusalem, his heavenly Jerusalem, his, uh, his, his Mount Zion, his new humanity, his new people. And so what does it do? A few things. What is God up to in the cross of Christ? One of the unfortunate theories about pain and suffering that I think a lot of people have is that people suffer because of sin in their lives. It is true that there are consequences to the sins that we sin. However, it is rather fascinating, Old Testament and New Testament, to think about this. Let's think about, first of all, Job. Job, we know, he was upright, blameless. It is his friends who present the theory, Job, you must have, you really must have blown it. Because God, he is just visiting you with all of this judgment for some sin, some secret sin in your life. And if you would just come clean about it, well, things would turn out better for you. Of course, there was no secret hidden sin. Job, again, he was upright, he was godly. And we know that behind the curtain of our physical realm, there was something going on in the spiritual realm. So no, it is not true that we always suffer because of sin in our lives. Think about the example in John chapter 9. with The man born blind. Uh, Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents? That was the question of the disciples to Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus says there? Not, neither his parents nor he sinned. This is to demonstrate and display the glory of God. And then he goes on and, and heals him. And I think it's even Jesus himself who demonstrates that it's not because of sin in a person's life that they suffer, because Jesus, of course, he never sinned. And yet, he endured pain and suffering, not just on the cross, but he knew hunger. There were times when he went hungry. Forty days he fasted, and he was hungry, the Gospels tell us. And so, God in the flesh, was not exempt from suffering in this world. And so we are never promised exemption from pain in this world. Rather, what it can do is it can renew our perspective on suffering and pain. The text that was read for us just a few minutes ago from 1 Corinthians, look again at that text. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 to 57. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You see, death is the great enemy. Death is the final enemy. And now we see here, death will be swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Christ that we have the victory. God took the worst imaginable evil, the execution by the hands of sinful humans, 
the execution of the Son of God, and he turns it to victory over evil and suffering and even death itself. Again, evil does its worst. God accomplishes his best in the cross. The design of evil is actually turned in service to accomplish the greatest possible good. And then God appropriates Christ's victory to us. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Not because of anything we've done or because we're so good and godly and spiritual. It's through Jesus Christ our Lord that we have the victory. It is through his weakness that we are made strong. It is through our weaknesses that God puts on display the marvels of his grace. And so by by refusing exemption from suffering and pain, as though he's some kind of invulnerable superman, Jesus experiences the worst the world has to offer so that we might have hope in God. So that God can even transform our suffering, all of the illness and the sorrow and the grief and the suffering and the death. None of it is beyond the gracious reach of our God. There is still a war going on, make no mistake. And there are still very powerful spiritual opponents. Harry Bohr was a chaplain during the final days of World War II. He, was, he served in the Pacific Theater. That was where the fighting was the heaviest. Casualties were great. And... Bohr says of that, and I quote, he says, I I never met an enlisted man of an officer who doubted for a moment the outcome of the war. Nor did I ever meet a Marine who asked why, if victory was so sure, why we couldn't have it immediately. It was just a question of slogging through till the enemy gave up. Again, there's a spiritual war going on, but at the cross... Those cosmic spiritual powers of evil did their worst. Well, you better believe Satan had his hand all up in the cross. And yet Jesus, through the cross, triumphs over the spiritual powers of evil. Listen to what Paul, how Paul puts it in, uh, first of all, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse... 20, beginning in verse 20 of Ephesians 1, talking about the the great power, the great might that God was working and is working, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And those terms, rule, authority, power, dominion, every name that is named, this is Paul talking about those spiritual powers, those spiritual forces of darkness. And we notice that it is in the resurrection that, of course, comes after the cross. Christ dies, he's buried, he's raised on the third day, according to the power of God, God working his power in Christ to raise him from the dead, and by the resurrection, Christ is made conqueror over those spiritual forces of darkness. In the book of Colossians, 
You get a similar message, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. Notice that uh, verse 14, not only was, the, was our debt canceled, the record of our debt canceled, uh, as he set it aside, nailing it to the cross, but then notice verse 15, he, that is Christ, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, same terminology used over in Ephesians 1, by the way, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it, that is, in the cross. In other words, Christ won the war on the cross. In his own words, he says in John chapter 12, that now is the ruler of this world cast out. But there are still battles to be fought. There's still fighting to be done. But rest assured that whatever wounds that we receive in this spiritual battle, they will be rewarded one day. So fight the good fight, my brothers and sisters. War the good war on behalf of Christ. And with all the strength that he supplies by his spirit. Let's land in Romans 8. We read that to begin with. Let's close with that. We talked about verses 28 through 30 last week. And we read verses 31 and following. What shall we say to these things? What things? Well, the things that are there in verses 28, 29, 30. God is at work in all things, works all things together for good for those who love him, those called according to his purpose. That those who before knew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those who he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. In light of all these things, what shall we say? Notice, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. It is not, a, it's not Paul questioning here. He's, he's not, gee, I sure hope he is. It, but if he is, right, it, this, is, this is a statement that assumes the truth of it. Since God is for us, and let, let me just say this, he's for us. He's for you, my brothers and sisters. God is for you. He's on your behalf. Who can be against us. How do I know that God is really for me? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. What's he talking about there? The cross. How, how again, the father sent the son into the world to die on the cross, to live the sinless life. Absolutely. But it culminates in the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection. God did not spare his own son. But in fact, the father satisfies his wrath for sin in the son. That is, God satisfies his own wrath in God. He's the only one who can fully take it and exhaust it so that we never have to face it. And since he did not spare, what is the greatest gift that God could give us? himself in his son and he did not spare that he gave us the son how will he not also with him graciously give us all things God did the impossible thing in dying in our place so that he can do the easy thing in graciously giving us 
all things. And by the way, that includes him giving us of himself. You see, once the son is resurrected, he ascends back to the father's right hand. And then what does God do? God sends God again. This time the father and the son send the Holy Spirit into the world to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And and then to fill us. Those of us who hear the beauty of the gospel and and believe it and and repent of our sins and confess Christ as Lord and are obedient to the point of being baptized, immersed in water, have all of our sins washed away by the blood of Christ, raised to live this new life. He fills us with His Holy Spirit. He graciously gives us all things. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? That's us. That's, That's the us that God is for. His elect. He is for His elect. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That is His ongoing ministry as our great high priest, interceding on our behalf. And by the way, you connect this also with the work of the Spirit back in verse 27. The one who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for us, for the saints, according to the will of God. You have the Spirit interceding. You have the Son interceding. And you have the Father receiving all of that. And and everything everything that we we pray, because that's the context of this, is, is our prayer life and how the Spirit helps us in that weakness. And so he is. He has given us all good things, especially. And, and I hope you hear this. I hear what Paul is saying here. The Holy Spirit through Paul is communicating. When he says he will graciously give us all things, that doesn't mean a big bank account, a fancy car, and a nice home. Not our felt needs, our real needs. And we need an interceder at the right hand of God. We need someone to help us in our prayer life. And we need the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So who, and it's fascinating the way this is asked, right? Who will separate us? You you expect from the question who, for him to start naming people. But what he does, he starts naming what? A bunch of what's like tribulation and distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And notice, this is how we know. It's not that, again, now that you're in Christ's, uh, now that you're part of Christ, you're, he, now that you have the love of Christ and, and you are now a Christian, that doesn't mean you're exempt from pain and suffering in this world because of verse 36. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What do we have then? Again, we have God meeting all of those real needs that we need. Not just to coast through life, Without a, without a care in the world. But that when we do come up against the pain and the suffering and the sorrow and the grief and the hurts and everything, we have the promise of a triune God who's loved us from eternity, graciously giving us everything that we need when things are bad, 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 and then working all those things out for His good, good, good. What was God up to in the cross? Even in the crucified God. He's at work to give us this renewed perspective on pain and suffering. He's at work even in the pain to transform it into victory 
on our behalf. He is at work even in the present battles that are being waged right now in light of the future final victory at the end of time. And God is at work to give us all good things to meet those real needs that we have in the midst of all of this world of evil. Let's commit this to prayer. We rejoice and give you thanks, Father in heaven, for what you have done in Christ Jesus. We praise you for the gospel and how the, through the worst imaginable evil you are accomplishing the greatest possible good. We pray that we would live under the shadow of the cross, recognizing that you are for us, no matter what we are going through. You are for us, and you are graciously giving us exactly what we need. The avenue of prayer, your spirit within us interceding on our behalf with groans too deep for uttering. Jesus Christ, our Lord, at your right hand, interceding for us. And you graciously stooping down, bending your ear to hear us. And although we are not promised ease in this life, we acknowledge that you are at work here and now. And that one day, someday, we will see you as you really are. In all your glory and we ourselves are glorified in your presence. Again, we, we rejoice. We give you thanks. And we do so. In Jesus' name, amen.